I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a really special episode. On today's episode, I have on Marcy Chopin. She's a yin and restorative yoga teacher who blends those styles to invite ease into her students' bodies. She's also a longtime Ashtanga yoga practitioner. And in this interview, Marcy talks a lot about how we can use right effort in our practice. As you listen, I encourage you to think about the places in your practice and in your life that you could increase or reduce effort for better result. If you're a yoga teacher, there are some great tips in here for how you can create and attract a safe space for your students. Marcy has a very unique way of understanding and remembering what the experience is like from the student's perspective. You'll love to hear the equalizing way Marcy starts every class she teaches and other resources that she uses aside from yoga to support her feeling groovy. Marcy has survived multiple traumas, one of which she writes about in depth in her self-published book, Yin Yoga Masterclass, a memoir. She was careful in this interview to avoid, as she calls it, trauma porn and mindful not to traumatize listeners by referring in too many details to her personal story. So you'll have to get her book for that. What she does offer in this dialogue are some really important insights about taking ownership of one's own healing and one's own narrative. And as she told me after recording, after all I've been through, I'm still here. That's something to be proud of. So without further ado, here we go. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Thanks for doing this, Marcy. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much. And so uh, I wanted to start with this podcast about trauma. So, and like I told you, like moving trauma through the body and I want to get a sense from you if you have a thought on what is trauma. I will speak from personal experience. I think trauma is whatever you were going to do, someone's interrupted that in a very negative way. How about that? Yeah. Do you want to say more on like where you come from in that definition? So middle age for those of your listeners who don't know, and I've spent a lot of time dealing with my own personal trauma and there's a lot you can heal from, but what's always interesting to me is where was I going in that course before the event happened and who would I have become or what would I have looked like or what would my reactions to situations be? So I always think of trauma as someone's just interrupted you. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. In your experience, like how does that show up in the body in the reactions moving forward? 
The way trauma is stored in the body is such an interesting question, especially for you and I as yoga teachers. Just speaking to that, the way a student wants to open in a pose and not wanting to turn it into a personal moment, if that's not what it calls for, but knowing that the back bend might require more than some stretches beforehand, that there might be going something going on there that they need to deal with, right? We roll our shoulders in to protect our heart. What is that coming from? So the way trauma is stored in the body. As yoga teachers, I think we can see it or we understand it better in postures, right? Yeah, so you might notice in a student that their their shoulders are kind of hunched in a protective position, protecting the heart center. And instead of instructing into a back bend and, and even beyond offering a couple stretches to prepare for that pose, you might consider like navigating your yoga instruction in a different way. Right. Without taking over the role of therapist or without being intrusive, but to open the dialogue so that the student feels safe sort of bringing that to the practice because I don't want to lead, right? So we're not talking so objectively and it doesn't sound like I'm trying to sort of run from what you're asking, but that is something that happened to me in, you could see in my practice where there's photos of me before yoga and I'm like two inches shorter. Wow. Because I'm just rounding and stumping. The person who I dealt with when I was younger is shorter than I am. And I just made myself their height. And the thing I always heard when I first started practicing yoga is friends and family members were like, how is it you got taller, right? How is that? And just the shoulders came back down and the chest lifted and I wasn't scared to stand up. So from personally speaking and as a yoga teacher, I have seen both sides of that. Mm. Yeah, maybe you want to share a little bit about how you got into yoga. I know you had a, a bicycle accident. Right, I was bicycling in Oakland, California, and an elderly driver just took a sweeping turn into me. And then because they were old, they had terrible reaction time, which really helped me because they kept driving and I rolled off their car and landed on my feet, which I think was better than them stopping and me going to the ground. And what we're talking about before, just how your course in life changes from these moments I was on a completely different path from that and had a lot of really bad neck pain. But that also led me to the other pain that I was storing into my body, in my body. Can you share some more about that? Sure. You know, the different ways we store life in our bodies, it could be physical, right? You know, I see soccer players and they walk and their feet are bouncing out and it could be from trauma. It can be from different things. And what brought me to yoga was that physical accident, right? Going headfirst into a car windshield and really messing up my neck. But that was compounded also by the other stuff that had happened to me. And so one led to the other in terms of healing, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious what those first yoga classes were like for you, what your experience was like. I actually didn't start with yoga. I started with a lot of different hands-on healing modalities. I mean, it was a lot of 
asking other people to heal me and do the work. And then I took a yoga class and felt the best I'd ever felt in my life and realized that I had to do the work, that it was me. Wow. So yeah, so you were previously some massage, things like that. And then in the yoga practice, you had the teacher leading, but you felt more of like you were owning the work. Right, right. Absolutely. I was just wondering if you felt that when you went to a yoga class that somebody is calling out the poses, but you get the sense that like, oh, this is on you. This is going to be your responsibility to be as strong in a pose as you want or go as deep as you want, that it's really you on the mat. Yeah, you can definitely, you can decide in your, in your poses, like how intense you want to make them, right? Like you can do the same posture, but depending on the effort that you bring to it, the intensity that you bring to it, maybe some oppositional work, you can increase the work in that pose, or you can come off it. You'd be in the same shape and a teacher, you know, depending on how skilled they are, might not even know, right? <laughs> you could feel kind of easy in the pose or working in the pose. I've definitely experienced that. I felt the practice was taking me away. Like I was on a ride with it. Mm. So I felt very much like it was doing something to me. But then later in, in some other classes that I entered, when I started doing the Mysore style, the self, you know, self-led, that's when I, I started to realize how much was on me. <laughs> I started really studying yoga at the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And those are mostly, or at the time, those mostly Iyengar-based classes, which is just a lot of long holds and poses and really focus on alignment. But this teacher would occasionally put in a little bit of vinyasa, like a plank to a down dog, speaking to whether or not like were responsible for the practice of the teacher was I knew I was scared to move like the vinyasa part scared me and that's when I was like this is all about you like he's just calling these poses and it's your stuff on the mat like you can let go of your fears here you can feel safe here but you get to do all this work for you yeah I found that empowering like yeah he was leading the class but I didn't feel like I don't know I felt like I was in charge of my healing and responsible for it, which I loved about yoga. Yeah. And you immediately felt that yoga was healing. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. I don't have a type A personality. So getting into the poses was never a focus of mine. <laughs> I was, it was very exploratory for me. It was, you know, I don't have a movement background or dance. So it was, it was the first time I had interacted with my body that way. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just being curious and seeing like what works, what makes me feel better. And you're not an object in a yoga class, right? And I hope students don't feel that way. I, I know that's challenging with clothing and types of yoga classes, but I definitely felt like if I took a dance class, there was something about that that just didn't sit well with me in terms of you know you're there to be seen and watched. But in a yoga class, I felt very safe about not feeling like an object, not feeling, I didn't feel the judgment in the place I was practicing. And that was wonderful. You know, not everyone feels that way. I wonder if that was because of the teacher or just the way you viewed yoga or a different time. <laughs> I think the venue attracted a crowd that 
wasn't in a place in their life at that time where those things were important. But the teacher attracts certain kinds of students, you know, where unfortunately the yoga can be performative. And I mean, I definitely, and I don't think you attract that or bring that out in a class. So it's the teacher, it's the venue. Yeah. It's a combination of things. Yeah. And this is before, this was a long time ago. This is like 99. So it's kind of a different animal now. Yeah. Agreed. And so you started with this Iyengar, a little bit vinyasa. And how did your practice progress? What kind of changes did you see? Did you stay with those teachers a long time? No, I I was at the 92nd Street Y, I think, for only a year before the teacher pulled me aside and said, it's time for you to teach. And there was just some beautiful serendipity where I was in a teacher training program like very shortly after. Wow. Yeah. You were in. <laughs> yeah, like I went to the movies with a friend and her boyfriend was like, she was like, oh, he did this training. I should find out where. And then they, there was a Monday and they started on Thursday and they had like one spot left. And you were like, I'm going to be a yoga teacher. It just, you know, I, I'm very intuitive in my decisions and I follow the energy. And so I went with that. So how was your yoga teacher training experience? Challenging. I had a nine-month teacher training program. We had 13 papers, I think. We had a midterm, a final. We met every other weekend for 20 hours. And then after it, everyone was exhausted. And they're like, you know what? If we just do this for three months and charge triple the amount, that'll work better. (laughs) (laughs) it It was very intense, but I feel like I'm a good teacher because of that. There's a lot of anatomy. There was... There's a lot, a lot of practice work. We all took it very, very seriously. Mm. We were told things like, if you ever say stomach muscle, you'll never teach at this place. Oh. You know, like we had, <laughs> yeah, it was like the stomach is not a muscle. It's an organ for digestion. And <laughs> yeah, we're like, okay, got it. Yeah. So you learned your stuff. They didn't like the stuff. This is going to be hard, but they don't like the tuck the tailbone thing. They don't like euphemisms in terms of anatomy. It was it was like, don't say stomach muscle. Don't say tuck your tailbone. The, you know, the tailbone's like three to five vertebrae. It's attached to your sacrum. You're not tucking it. You're tilting your pelvis. It was like, don't educate your students that way. You know, know the body. That's great. I think there's so many things that are passed down from teacher to student, or even like then the student becomes a teacher and they start saying them. And we don't know where they came from, right? We're just saying them because our teacher said them. Absolutely. And they're not correct. <laughs> yeah. We have to stop that. So tuck your tailbone as a teacher when I'm practicing. I'm like, that doesn't make sense to students. What does it mean to students? What do you want them to do? <laughs> There's no action to that. What would you do if someone said tuck your tailbone in class? You would tilt your pelvis down and flatten your lumbar spine. You and I, I'm sure, can go off on a little tangent about this. But anyway, it's... Um... <laughs> no, it's a, it, you know, it speaks to a really good point. And um, when the trainings, you know, the, the intensity of the training, the trainings matter. And they're not all like that. And I think you got a great training and it stayed with you and it shows up so much in your teaching. Did you begin to teach immediately after you graduated? I started teaching during the training. Wow. 
Yeah. So what was that like? What were those first classes like? It was having somebody whose Saturday morning class was packed and waitlisted and wanted me to be a good teacher and would call the studio and say, have Marcy sub my class, like the most popular class of the week. This was a beautiful woman who, you know, I'm a jokey woman and I'm not like her. And it was challenging. She really liked to put me in in places where it's like sink or swim. (laughs) So a month into my training or something like that, I was like subbing these Saturday morning classes with 40 students and just having a very long 90 minutes of my life. You know, just like, okay. You're really thrown into the deep end. Yeah. Have you had these moments where you're like, okay, these people aren't happy you're a sub. So you'll teach a really complicated and interesting sequence and you do it and you do both sides and you look at the clock and four minutes have gone by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, okay, we're do, we're going to do a pigeon. So I can just, yeah. When, when it's, I'll give it a little inside info. Sometimes when teachers call pigeon, they've run out of stuff. Because <laughs> it could take a long time in that posture, right? And everyone loves pigeon. You could do a 20 minute pigeon and people be like, that's the best class. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you think it is about that pose? Forward bends are cooling and calming, quieting. Yeah. Which is, I'm glad you asked that. I think students have anxiety when they go to like, when they go to a regular vinyasa class. So you and I practice Ashtanga and we really don't have to worry about what poses are going to be taught. It's the same sequence. And I love that I know that and I can focus on my breath and I could focus on like trying to stop daydreaming. But when students go to a class, I wonder if teachers know or think about the anxiety they have over whether or not it's going to be too hard or too easy. Yeah. And then you do pigeon and that anxiety kind of melts away, right? Because it's like, I'm getting a really good stretch. And usually it's taught after you're a little sweaty. So I think it just sort of calms everyone down about how hard class is going to be. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. No, I really, that's a uh, beautiful intuition about the pose and how it shifts the energy of the class and the, the thoughts running around the students. Do you have go-to poses that you bring into your teaching? So I'm a yin and restorative teacher, and I always start class with students lying on their backs. So I start class technically in Shavasana to pull everyone's energy together and let them know that it's going to be calm. And in that way, I always start class with the same couple of poses to try to remove that anxiety. And how does that work? uh, Do you find that the students are able to relax or do you see resistance? I think we always see resistance, even if there's not intended resistance, just the shifting from before practice life with the busyness to the mat. You could call that resistance, right? You have to change your energy, you're focusing more on your body, and you might want to do it intellectually, but then you lie down and you can't quiet your mind, or you feel fussy, or you realize that your shoulder's killing you. I think having everyone start lying on the ground is also an equalizer. So Mm. 
we all look the same. It sort of takes, it takes away a lot of the stuff that when students first come into a room and see everyone, they're processing a lot. They're processing the outfits that people are wearing. Yeah. And they're processing the different shapes and sizes and who got the good spot in the room. And so everyone's lying on the ground. And I feel like I try to take away some of that. Mm, I really like that. And I haven't experienced that in many classes I can remember aside from yours. Do you practice yin? I know you teach yin. I know you have an Ashtanga practice. Do you incorporate some yin into your practice as well? Practically every day I do yin and restorative yoga at home. Mm. I try to do that instead of play with the phone. It doesn't (laughs) always work, but I try to do that instead of playing with the phone. Whether it's just lying on the ground and taking my legs up on the sofa edge and elevating them. Yeah. I used it to grab a moment, right? So sometimes you can use yoga for different things. And you can use yin yoga where you don't need any heat building. And you could do it in any outfit. And you could do it with the edge of a chair or a wall. I use that to take those moments where you just need a pause in the day rather than playing with my phone. Yeah. If someone, if someone has this couple minutes, right. And they, they're going through Instagram or whatever on their phone, like what's a pose that they should take or could take? I always lie down on the ground and put my legs up on something. Yeah. Elevated legs. Yeah. Just let my neck and my back and all all the muscles that were holding me up, let them get a reprieve. Yeah, that feels good just hearing about it. <laughs> <laughs> I did that right before I did the podcast with you. I only had like four minutes before what I was doing before. And I lay on the ground and took my legs up and mm-hmm. it centered me a little bit. It's, it's just very, it's very nice. It's easy. Yeah. You know, you have a very killer Ashtanga practice. So what do you do to relax physically? Like what's your pose to? Actually, I'm doing a lot of somatic work lately. So sitting and tuning in to sensation and just being aware of what's happening. Mm. Um, and I'm, I have a gentler approach, especially in, in the last years. I also like elevating my legs, legs up the wall. That's a favorite. <laughs> um, right. And then also really supported, like really supported Baddha Konasana or really mm-hmm. supported child pose. More more curling than I used to do. I was really lengthening, lengthening, you know, into those folds, really feeling into a supportive curled up positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those and the elevated legs. I mean, I'm with you. Elevated legs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell everyone <laughs> the same thing. If you can't do anything else, just get those legs elevated. I mean, look, if you go to the hospital, that's that's what they do, right? Right. And if you have lower back pain, you're not going to mess up your lower back elevating your legs. You know, hold me to that, but it's pretty much <laughs> uh, So when, when students do legs up the wall, usually they get their butt to the wall. And a lot of students are tight in their hamstrings. And so I'm just going to put an addendum to what we're saying. You don't have to have your butt against the wall. Your butt can be far away. Yes. Good point. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that, Marcy. So you're seeing a lot of students. You're teaching yin yoga. You're practicing. You teach a yin and and restorative kind of blend, which I really liked. Mm -hmm. I'm certified in both yin yoga and restorative yoga. And then after 
20 years of teaching, sort of an amalgamation of the two. Yeah, I think that's really nice. It was unusual. And I, I enjoy taking class with you because of the way you blend those two styles. They complement one another. Very, very relaxing, comforting. And you feel, you know, you feel your opening as well. So yin yoga and restorative yoga are both supine. All the poses are done on the ground. There isn't heat building. And there's a lot of props. And you sit in poses, but you don't try to go into them deeply. You let gravity do all the work. You kind of get out of your own way. So by having the props support you, your responsibility is to do less. Usually you're thinking about doing more in poses, but I always teach do less. Do less Mm -hmm. and less and less. And that's how you will open in yin, which is different for students to hear in terms of a physical practice. And I think that just doing less is relaxing for students. Yeah, very relaxing. And something we're not used to, not always easy to figure out. <laughs> like, how do I do less? This goes back to what you and I were talking about in terms of going to the mat and deciding how much effort you want to put in, which can speak to Ayurveda and the gunas. I didn't pronounce that correctly. Gunas? Yeah. The, yeah. Where there's three different kinds of energy, rajasic, tamasic, and sattvic. And I feel like one thing my source taught me, since you have to practice it most of the week, is like on Monday, go 50%. So mm. I'm doing all the same poses I'm going to do on Friday, but I'm not going to get to Friday if I go 100%. And do you find that Ashtanga's taught you that? Like we're, I'm just circling back. I hope it's okay. So we were talking about how much effort to put into poses and it doesn't always serve the student to go too hard. So if you go too hard, that's rajasic. And if you go too little, that's tamasic, if I'm pronouncing these correctly. So the happy medium in between the two is sattvic, where it's just right amount of effort And that right amount of effort might change from day to day to day. And that's something I also appreciate about yin and restorative and ashtanga is that they're teaching you not to go 100%, that it actually doesn't serve you in terms of getting stronger or more flexible or having peace of mind going 100% isn't always the best. I couldn't agree more. I talked about this just today. I was teaching a class and talking about right effort, you know, what is right Mm -hmm. effort and exploring that in each posture, in each moment, what is the amount of effort that's correct for me to use right now? And like you said so eloquently, that's in flow and it changes from day to day. It's not always the same answer. And it's a great question to ask, you know, just along the day with anything Mm -hmm. we're doing um, within relationship, within brushing our teeth. (laughs) You know, I was like, check in. Why am I clenching my bum? (laughs) Do I need that to brush my teeth right now? Right. So I think like if you, if you just have that as like a little, you know, a little loop in the mind, it can be really informative and it's something to get curious about. And um, that's exactly what you said about doing more, doing a hundred percent and doesn't necessarily get you the results, the best results definitely something that I had to learn and learned a lot in my Ashtanga practice. It's like, oh, I can get further by doing less. <laughs> I never thought about that. Hmm. Did you learn that through injury? 
No, I just saw that. I saw that with just with how the body works. Like, oh, if I just do less here, I'm actually going to release more, you know, thinking about it in like forward folding. And before that, that was a paradigm shift because I was doing a lot of extra efforts in life, you know, that Mm. weren't producing results. And sometimes we can do that to make us feel like we're doing something, you know, and so we can say, well, I tried so hard, (laughs) like, um, even though we know that we're not, we might be trying hard, but we're not trying artfully. So they're different. Or you ask someone, how was your day? And they said, it was great. I got a lot done. Hmm. Well, what's another metric for measuring a good day? And that goes back to effort. Why does a hundred percent mean that you had a good practice? There's a lot of no pain, no gain kind of mentality in the Western relationship to the body. And I always flip that around that there is no gain from pain. You have to listen to your body. Unless you're sponsored, I really don't understand why you would push through pain. (laughs) I'm not an Olympian. No one sees my practice. No one really cares about my dropbacks. I just feel really good after I do them. That's why I do Ashtanga. I feel really good. And it helps with my stuff. I, I love Ashtanga for that. Do you want to talk a little more about why you love Ashtanga and why that's your practice of choice? Absolutely. I think I set you up that way, right? I I am happy to say, since this is about trauma, is that I have PTSD and I find Ashtanga is the best practice. The side effects of PTSD, the anxiety, the depression, and the anger I get a lot of space from that when I practice Ashtanga. So then I'm able to go into situations and not react from the place of PTSD or I could be like, okay, this is upsetting you. You know, it gives me that space. Mm. What do you think it is? Is it the three-pointed focus? Is it the set sequence? What do you think it is about the practice? Speaking for myself is that spending a childhood tensed up and reacting from that place of anticipation of anxiety and having that tensed up released in Ashtanga because it rings you out. And if you're not familiar with Ashtanga, it gets in there. It's an intense practice with complicated poses that with a great teacher, you're slowly led through. And I feel like it calms my nervous system and it rings out my nervous system. Mm, yeah. I've always felt like that. A lot of people feel that Ashtanga wouldn't fit the kind of trauma sensitive model because of being told what to do by the teacher. Teachers are known for giving a lot of hands-on adjustments. How do you feel about that? I haven't heard that. Um, oh. Yeah, I didn't. I'm in New York City, so I have access to a lot of different Ashtanga teachers. So if one's not groovy, there's just mm-hmm. another Ashtanga teacher. I guess I can't speak to that. It hasn't been my experience. As a yoga teacher, any student can tell me they're not comfortable with hands-on. I've never met a yoga teacher who wouldn't respect those boundaries. I think you bring up a good point is that 
teachers sometimes require your trust right off the bat. And I think good teachers realize that it'll take time. That just because they came into the room doesn't mean they're going to give you all your trust, all mm. their trust. But it's not my experience with Ashtanga. And I've had you as a teacher and I've practiced at your studio and I feel safe in Ashtanga. But I, I know there's been injuries with students. And every field has their bad apples. Maybe that's too dismissive. But I didn't know that people would think it would be bad for trauma. Yeah, I think power dynamic between teacher and student is the most important factor in a, a safe space. And that can happen in any style, right? And I think you're you're pointing to the important thing, which is it's it's a lot about the teacher right? Not necessarily the, the style of the practice, but maybe some styles lend themselves more to like, if that's not feeling right, let's try this, where some teachers may teach Ashtanga yoga in a way where it's just, I'm teaching the system, right? Not the student. And uh, I always, you know, as you mentioned, feeling safe in my studio, <laughs> you know, I've, I, I always took a student approached lens you know, teach the student and um, the system is a tool and, and there's lots of ways to work within and around it. So just not being overly dogmatic, but looking at the person that's in front of you and trying to help them figure out what they need. And not assigning that to Ashtanga. I mean, it's not Ashtanga. Like the, the things you're saying, I would, I think they're for any yoga teacher can be that way. You know, Iyengar teachers could be that way. Mm, yeah. So I don't think the shtanga is the reason. I mean, if you're not a groovy person, it doesn't matter what kind of yoga you teach. You're just mm -hmm. not going to be a groovy person. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. It could be yin or restorative. If you're not groovy, you know, if not, if you don't want to be empathetic and you don't want to be nice, you're probably going to bring that to any kind of practice. Well said. Well said. So much is, is the energy of the teacher, the grooviness of the teacher. Would you mind if I added something else about Ashtanga? Not that we're promoting Ashtanga, but the complicated poses for me have released a lot of memories. And they've brought up the memories, and that's been that's challenging when that happens. And I'll have to run out to the bathroom and have a good cry. But I feel like Ashtangas for me has picked up where talk therapy left me off, where it's getting, I can't hide in Ashtanga. Yeah. And I love that, the purging of the secrets in my body in the practice. Yeah, I felt like that a lot, especially when I first started practicing. And then the longer I practiced, the more I felt like it was just kind of like a, I got through some of the older stuff and then it's like, okay, I just got to like wash off yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's, right. that kind of keeps me practicing. It's like, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to build up too much that I have to <laughs> purge. Right. That you have to ring out later. Yeah. Yeah. I remember some, some deep cries and some postures, especially in those first years. Marcy, um, you have a book out about oh, yeah. a particularly traumatic experience that you lived through. Wonder if if you want to share anything about that book. I wrote and self-published a book in 2017 called 
Yin Yoga Masterclass, a memoir. That title came to me when I was falling asleep one night writing it and it just wouldn't leave. I mean, I kind of wish today that I had just given it like a one word (laughs) title, but it came and it stuck. So Yin Yoga Masterclass, a memoir. And it sounds pretentious to say memoir, but it's about a traumatic event that happened to me and how I got through it with yoga and writing. Am I being too broad? I don't want to give away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's quite the story. I mean, it's a very beautifully written, powerful story of a deeply traumatic event, like you said, that happens to you while you're already a yoga teacher. And yoga is you know, in there and your, your dedication to being a yoga teacher and to your students um, and never missing class and really showing up for them is something that stood out for me in the book. Thank you. Yeah. The event that it happened in 2016 and in the first hours of what happened, I have a background in art and writing and When I disassociate from my PTSD, that's when being an artist and writer are helpful. So like, okay, we'll observe. Uh, I made the decision to write everything down. And I thought, you're not going to get through this unless you write it all down and you act as an observer. And that's what I did. And then when there was resolution, there was like 100,000 words ready. So I sat down and wrote it out. I really appreciate that and what you're speaking to as far as having other practices and resources that work for you and especially during certain times. Yoga has been very helpful for you, for me as well, but I never mm-hmm. claim it's everything. And it's nice to hear, you know, I go, I, I lean into my art, into my writing at these times. I think your your dog is... <laughs> Buster, Yes. Yeah. And so I think sometimes yoga teachers can really like believe so much in yoga, which we do, you know, Um, but it's nice to have some other things that we can lean on and that that can be supportive for us. Uh, Are there any others that I'm missing? I think circling back to what happened with me after my bicycling accident, where I had the realization that it was my responsibility to heal. And I was angry about that because I didn't feel like I had caused any of these things. I didn't hit myself with a car. I, you know, the abuse, there was a lot of resistance towards healing myself because I, why do I also have to do that? (laughs) But anything where you're going to be able to take ownership of your healing, I think will be more helpful. Mm. So I am an advocate of do what you need to do to get through the moment, whatever that is, with its medicine, um, whatever that is. But then it's going to be really beautiful if you lead your healing. Mm. Yeah. And you know best, right? Unfortunately, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, meaning, I mean, the individual, <laughs> the, the individual, like, no one can know you, you know, as you can. Yeah. And isn't it great when you... You can make a silly analogy. I mean, ordering in food is fun, but when you cook for yourself, that's totally different. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, Marcy, you're you're doing some cool things for yourself 
these days, I also wanted to make sure that we shared about Thumbski. Mm, Thumbski. Do you mind if I talk about Thumbski? Is that okay? It's I want it's you to. It's not traumatic. It's not traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Thumbski is a combination of Thumbsky, right? Thumbski. It's a nickname I had as a little kid because I would not stop sucking my thumb. It provided me great comfort and my family wouldn't stop ridiculing me. And so they called me this nickname, which had me dig my heels in even more. So I was like, well, if you guys are going to continue being jerks, I'm going to stick with the thing that's making me feel good. And then if you've ever tried to start a business and find an original name online, it was amazing that Thumbski wasn't taken. So it was a little kismet with that. Thumbski is where I'm able to brush off my old art degree and be creative, which has been very satisfying. And I do little drawings, little designs. I started wanting to just do yoga because I'm in a neighborhood in New York City, East Harlem, where whenever I try to get someone excited about doing yoga, they, I'll speak frankly, they're like, yeah, that's only for skinny white women. And it's not, yoga is not just for skinny white women. And I thought, well, how do I get my demographic where I live into yoga? And I thought, well, humor, but I was like, what if I just made these funny drawings? And then they saw that yoga was something else. And then it was like, okay, if I put them on t-shirts, people love buying stuff. You know, when anyone wants to start a sport, they're like, well, I'm happy to buy the $5,000 bicycle. It's another thing to ride the bicycle. So, So I thought if I could just get people to like wear funny yoga stuff, maybe that'll make it more accessible. And this sounds, it doesn't sound great for me saying it out loud. It sounds very naive and a little earnest, but that's how it started. And then it morphed into just more designs and more designs. And I'm working on a series for May's Mental Health Month for PTSD. Mm. But there's a lot of humor on there and some just funny yoga stuff. Thumbski.com. Yeah. And I mean, I know you said it's not about trauma, but I think it's a great example of taking an experience that wasn't great. I read that story when, you know, you told me about your business and I I looked at your site and that hit me, you know, I heard that child being made fun of, and I thought it was very clever and empowering that you decided to take that and turn that into your business name. (laughs) And, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. Just like turn it into an empowering moment. So I think that is related and very smart. (laughs) Another example of taking control of your own, your own healing, your own narrative. With what's happened with what I go through, I don't like the idea of being a victim. I don't have to participate in that. So Thumbski is another way using that name. So I just feel like if you use that word to describe yourself, where do you go from there in terms of how you see yourself? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much. I don't have to, and no one else has to ascribe those words to who they are. Like when I had my bike accident, I was with a friend and I was saying, I have a bad back. And she's like, you know, you might want to just say your back's bothering you today because otherwise you're just married to that 
phrase. Yeah. Really informed me. And that informed the idea of like, you know, what words do we use to see ourselves? There's so much wisdom there. Because you can continue to self-harm or harm yourself by using those words. Yeah. What really comes to me is all the people that come to me and say, I'm bad at yoga. (laughs) Like, like you can't be bad at this. (laughs) It's not even something to be bad at. (laughs) Yeah. And where does that come from? And why is that happening? I know you as a student, I know you as a colleague and you and I don't have that about anyone who we're so happy to have people who want to practice yoga. And I don't, the way you look in a pose is irrelevant. Yeah. You know, it's it's not, you're going to feel good after your practice. That's what we're going for. We just want you to feel good after you practice. Yep. Exactly. Wear your old t-shirt, wear the old, we, it doesn't matter. Well, Marcy, I feel like that's such a great message to leave people on. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? No, darling. I really appreciate your time and inviting me on your podcast. And thank you. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.